in the name of the values that keep you alive do not let your vision of man be distorted by the ugly, the cowardly, the mindless of those who have never achieved his title. Do not lose your knowledge that man's proper estate is an upright posture, an intransigent mind, and a step that travels on limited roads. Do not let your fire go out sparked by replacing the spark in the hopeless swamps of the approximate, the not quite, the not yet, the not at all. The world you desired can be won. It exists. It is real. It is possible. It's yours. And welcome back to the Crypto Economy podcast. My name is William Harrison. I am the editor-in-chief of the CryptoEconomy.news website. And uh, today is just me. I'm just going to have a short little episode going over something that's really important that everybody needs to understand in America and elsewhere if you're a, a legal student. And that is the Bill of Rights. Uh, the Bill of Rights is an addendum to the Constitution that's often quoted and referenced, but seldom understood with the depth required to fully appreciate the rights protected by our Constitution. So uh, during this episode, I'd like to give my educated take on these first 10 amendments, including their full text, meaning, uh, history, and significance, uh, especially how they can be significant to modernity and how you can better understand your rights in order to exercise them freely. So uh, these amendments are specifically labeled the Bill of Rights because they cautiously limit the ability of the federal government to encroach on the people and the several states. They were all passed relatively quickly, especially when compared to the rest of the amendments, and were essentially crucial to the ratification of the new constitution in 1787, as the fierce opponents of the new document, uh, called the Anti-Federalists, thought that a general protection clauses in the first few articles that basically limited the federal government by saying, only, you know, Congress and the executive can only do X because it's uh, specifically said here. They, they didn't think this, this would suffice to shield citizens and their respective states from a ballooning government in Washington. Um, but before I get started, I just want to let you know that the, the most important words in the Bill of Rights are the people. Uh, it's a sweepingly general description that indicates a general synonym, synonymity with the people of the preamble in that it does not grant such rights included. Rather, it protects inherent and fundamental rights that are and forever shall be immune from government intrusion. So let's get, get right in with the First Amendment, perhaps the most popular one. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech, or of the press, or the right of the people peaceably to assemble, and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. So right off the bat, uh, the, the first word is Congress. Now, over the years, the, the Supreme Court and other, I guess, judicial authorities have come to, come to interpret this as not just limiting Congress. It limits the entire government. And furthermore, with selective incorporation, it actually limits the state governments as well, although that wasn't initially the case. Uh, so, so Congress essentially cannot make a law that either establishes a religion, and that's often confused. That doesn't mean that the Congress can't make any sort of distinction about religion. It just means that there cannot be an official established religion in the federal government of the United States. And on the flip side, conversely, that it also means that Congress cannot prevent certain people from being a certain religion. So, so essentially, instead of saying people have the right, like this constitution here therefore gives the right to people to, to profess their own religion. No, that's not the case at all. Rather, it says Congress cannot make a law that respects that. So the people inherently have a right to believe in whatever they want to believe. They also have a right to practice that freely, you know, as long as it doesn't affect the rights of other people um, so defined. Um, 
the next the next part is uh, prohibiting the free exercise thereof, which was covered, and then abridging the freedom of speech. Now, this one is a very, very contentious, controversial issue, especially with um, recent Supreme Court cases, such as Citizens United, where the First Amendment came under a spotlight like never before. So, abridging the freedom of speech, once again, notice it doesn't say this Constitution grants the right to free speech to everybody. No, it says you cannot abridge the freedom of speech. And uh, furthermore, freedom of speech does not limit to the act of speaking. The act of speaking, of course, is protected. However, this also extends across the board to expressive and uh, artistic endeavors, such as painting or you know writing books, authoring, creating movies. That was actually the, the central fold of the case for Citizens United. You know, most legal scholars, myself not included, I'm not a scholar by any means, but most legal scholars with a higher authority than I have, have interpreted this in a way that, that makes people on the left sort of have an animus towards corporations. But it is arguably the fair reading that any corporation has the right to spend money on political speech because the freedom of speech cannot be abridged. And thus, you know, however you feel about political donations, it's the case that everybody has the right to speak freely politically. And just because that speech requires money sometimes doesn't mean that it's, it's not a valid form of speech. Continuing on, the right of people peaceably to assemble. Now, this one is pretty pretty simple to to, uh, to interpret. That just means that you know you, you're allowed to go with anybody else and protest the government or just march in favor, whether it's the women's march or the right to keep arms. You know, whatever it is, you have the right peaceably to assemble. So the government can't break you up if you're in a crowd in the middle of some empty square just because you're standing there. However, if you are like, uh, let's see, Antifa or some other group that's militaristic and violent and you know, spraying graffiti and breaking windows. That's when the government's allowed to step in. That's not an encroachment. Uh, furthermore, to petition the government for a redress of grievances, uh, that just means that the, you know, in any case that the government uh, infringes on any of your rights, you have the, the fundamental right that cannot be abridged or infringed, that you can go to the government and petition them for a redress. That just means that if the government encroaches on you, you have the right to go and tell them that. You have the right to go seek damages from them and file suit in court against the government. That sovereign immunity, which basically protects any state of the government from specific lawsuits, does not apply to a redress of grievances. Now, uh, continuing on to the Second Amendment, which, of course, is probably the number one controversial amendment or even clause in the entire Constitution. You know, it ranks up there with a necessary and proper clause in terms of how many how much interpretation, uh, I guess, obfuscation it's had over the years. So the text is, A well-regulated militia, being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, shall not be infringed. Now, the specific grammar and wording of this have caused a lot of confusion, not just in people interpreting the Constitution for their job, but also just the layman who wants to figure out if he truly has a right to keep and bear arms. Well, the, the, central, the, the central words here are militia and people. So you know, if you take out some of these clauses sandwiched between commas, then you have a well-regulated militia, comma, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, comma, shall not be infringed. So basically what they're doing is they're equating a well-regulated militia, which had theretofore been defined in the congressional article as uh, a group of people not associated with the army or military, you know, a group of people that could protect the government in case the army could not be raised in sufficient time to repel an, uh, an invasion or something like that. But you're saying that a well-regulated militia is the same thing as the right of the people to keep and bear arms. You know, the militia and the people are one and the same. 
every, every person who's capable of bearing arms is, is free to join a militia as long as, you know, that, so militia, that militia so allows it. Uh, so shall not be infringed is something that's often misunderstood by most people on the right. So that just, that doesn't mean that the government is not allowed to ban any sort of arms, right? The government has rights to, to protect the citizens by taking arms away from certain people as long as that occurs via due process. Or if they can, you know, ban machine guns, that also is allowed. But, um, you know, both people on the left and the right misinterpret that. The, the real meaning is probably somewhere in the middle that, you know, you know you, the people have the right to protect themselves, to secure liberty for themselves, for their state, to, self, to defend themselves, or even to hunt. And that probably falls in the last, even though that sometimes confuses the first. But, you know, the, the real meaning is that you have a right to join a militia and defend yourself from the government. You also have the right to defend the government from other governments. And that's just, that's it. There's really no more to it. Continuing on the third amendment, no soldier shall in time of peace be quartered in any house without the consent of the owner, nor in time of war, but in the manner to be prescribed by law. So th- this one's pretty simple too. This one's actually never really had to come up. This was more in, in response to the, the Revolutionary War, or prior the, you know, times prior to the, the American Revolutionary War where British soldiers would come and stay in Americans or in colonists' houses without their permission. And the new government was afraid, or at least people that were concerned about their own rights, were afraid that at any time, if a state you know, acted out against the federal government, that the federal government would send in troops and have them stationed in certain people's homes um, and quartered there. And that this amendment just specifically prohibits that to ensure that people are, are safe in their homes and realize that property has its... its utmost meaning as something that you own personally and is immune from encroachment by the government. However, the, the, last, the last phrase of that, but in a manner to be prescribed by law, that doesn't completely, completely immunize people from the government. So if there is a law duly passed by Congress that says, okay, you know, the, this civil war is insane, we, we have to do something about it, we don't have the proper materials or supplies to be able to house all these troops, I'm sorry, but we're going to have to pass a law that says, you know, if you live in this district here, you have to allow soldiers in your house. So it's not a complete, you know, fundamental protection, but it is It is just a little guard against a soldier randomly knocking your door and <laughs> requisitioning your house. He's not allowed to do that. Uh, continuing on, Amendment 4. The right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrant shall issue but on probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. This one, additionally, is very, very controversial, especially in libertarian arguments and also on the left. They kind of share that animus toward the government that says, especially the NSA and the CIA, who've been passively collecting a lot of these uh, communications between people that they otherwise wouldn't ha- have access to. This, however, is slightly erroneous. Um, the right of people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and facts just means that Policemen and and members of the military can't just come in without due process and without notice, without warrant, and come search your effects and try to prove you're guilty without you knowing about it. That doesn't mean that they're not allowed to collect your information that you willingly give away to other companies or other people via your own specific communication or communicative abilities. So that doesn't protect you completely from the government collecting that information, but it does protect you from unreasonable searches and seizures. You know, another word that's absent from this that a lot of people tend to kind of attribute to this amendment is privacy. There's no inherent right to privacy 
in the Constitution. And that's really, it's going to bug a lot of people to hear that, but it's, it is true. There is no right to privacy. Um, another thing is, is, is uh, the unreasonable searches and seizures. That obviously is understood by many people to mean that cops can't you know, peer into your car and then break your window and search through your things and then arrest you for some arbitrary reason. That just means that everything has to go to a specific due process. The, the, the onus is on the government to be diligent and duly show that you are guilty of some crime that they are, are alleging. You know, they can't just come in and build a case on you without you knowing about it and without you consenting at least to be searched in the event that no warrant is issued. Um, continuing on, no person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime unless on presentment or indictment of a grand jury, except in cases arising in the land or naval forces or in the militia, when in actual service in time of war or public danger. Nor shall any person be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb, nor shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself, nor be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. So this one's kind of a lengthy one with a lot of <laughs> kind of a thick grammar and uh, thick clauses that are kind of hard to pick apart. You just kind of take it piecemeal and it's easier to understand. So the first section, no person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime unless on presentment or indictment of a grand jury. So that just means that any, any crime that involves a harsh punishment, you know, specifically criminal acts such as murder, or treason, or something like that. You, you can't just be brought up on charges by the government without the uh, balanced aspect of the people. So what a jury is, is a jury is a check and balance against the government in the judicial form. So there are a lot of checks and balances uh, in terms of uh, like democracy. So you have a democratic check against the arist aristocracy of the Senate in the, in the House of Representatives. You have a, a, an executive check against the uh, Congress in, in the form of a veto. You have a judicial check against the Congress by the Supreme Court in the form of um, nullification of laws that don't conform to the Constitution. And, uh, and in that same aspect, the, um, the jury is a protection against the government in terms of judicial authority. So in crimes that are extremely serious and what they call infamous, such as murder, the government is allowed to, isn't allowed to completely one-side it and bring up charges against you. They have to go through a grand jury. And what a grand jury is is a 12-person jury, sometimes it's more, uh, comprising one person from each federal district, which is just basically the, the United States is cut up into several districts, and then there's one for D.C., I believe. And what happens is they'll, they'll go around, they'll, they'll pick one person from each district to make sure that the jury is impartial, and then they'll, they'll ask the jury whether this person should be indicted for a certain crime. And if the jury is unanimous, then the, the indictment proceeds and a, a regular court case is held. Uh, so continuing, uh, accepting cases arising in the land or naval forces. Now, this is, uh, is a really important distinction. This means that when you enter the militia or, or the military, your rights to a specific uh, indictment from a grand jury are waived. So this is why the, the military and citizens or civilians have separate court systems. This, I'm sure you've heard the term court-martial. This is where this comes from. So the military has its own form of, of the judiciary, and they handle their own matters by themselves. So once you join the military, you don't have that same right. So if you murder somebody or if you um, abandon your troops, then you don't get to go, you don't get to have the same protection where a jury gets to indict you. You get, uh, your charges get brought up in the, in the military, the military handles it, you get court-martialed and you get your punishment there and your sentence completely separately. 
Um, so continuing on, nor shall any person be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life for limb. Now, this is known as a double jeopardy clause. So if if I get tried in the court in a certain place and the government doesn't like the ruling that the judge made and I get to walk free, they don't get to bring up charges in a different court and continue to do that because that wouldn't be fair. Because then what's the point of going to trial in one case if uh, it's just going to be waived and, and re-brought up the, and the charges are going to be re-brought up next time? Um, but this, this, however, doesn't apply to civil and criminal cases, right? So if you get charged for something in a criminal court and the judge uh, adjudicates and you're, and you're free to go and the judge says that you're, you're innocent, that doesn't protect you from civil penalties. And this was obviously best ex- uh, exemplified in the O.J. Simpson case. So O.J. was acquitted for his charges in the criminal court, but the family of his wife, I believe it's Nicole Simpson, uh, I might be wrong on that, I'm not really up to date on that, but... Um, she brought up her family brought up charges in in civil court for damages, so there's no jail time. But he still was found guilty for civil charges. So that doesn't apply for this for the two you know usually separate worlds in the judiciary, which is you know, the difference between civil and criminal courts. Uh, continuing, nor shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself. Uh, that also that that's also related to the Miranda rights. When you say uh, when you hear a policeman say you have the right to remain silent, that means that. You know, they will use what you say against you, against yourself, but you can't be forced to, uh, you can't be compelled to issue any sort of um, statement that could convict you or incriminate you. And so that's that's a very important, very important piece of the amendment. Um, next, let's see. Nor be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Now this, in my opinion, is the most important part of any of the amendments, Right. Uh, maybe other than slavery, that uh, the 13th Amendment, that's probably one of the most important. But this one, uh, without due process of law, without this, the government would be able to you know, seize your weapons if they thought you were crazy. They would be able to arrest you on suspicious charges and never file them in court and hold you indefinitely. They could come in your house and kill you because they suspected that you were a public danger. So due process just means that before you have your rights taken away, you have to be taken into court into a separate you know, an independent judiciary and have the judge, an independent and impartial judge or jury, decide whether your rights should be taken away or your life, liberty, or property should be deprived. Uh, that's also, that's very important and it's, you know, very prescient of the Anti-Federalists to, to assume that this wouldn't be inherently protected in an amendment without, or in a constitution without amendments. And uh, finally, for the Fifth Amendment, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. So this just means that the government can't take your land without compensating you. Uh, a lot of a lot of the uh, Federalists were, I believe, opposed to this, or were the Anti-Federalists that you know it's not fair that the government can just take your property without compensating you. Hey, who gets a, who decides what the compensation level is? And so people just generally settle on whatever the fair market value of of your property that's being seized or taken. If you have a, if there's a fair market value, and the government pays, and it's fair game. They're allowed to take it. Uh, so for Amendment 6, in all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury of the state and district wherein the crime shall have been committed, which district shall have been previously ascertained by law, and to be informed of the nature and cause of the accusation, to be confronted with the witnesses against him, to have compulsory processes for obtaining witnesses in his favor, and to have the assistance of counsel for his defense. Now, just like the Fifth Amendment, this one uh, deals specifically for a court proceeding, um, this basically means that if you are charged with a crime, especially in, in criminal court, notice how there's a distinction in all criminal prosecutions, so this has nothing to do with civil courts. 
but in all criminal prosecutions, you have the right to a trial. The trial has to be public. The government can't keep you in a, in a confined court and, and, and keep the, the public away, so only they have the ability to observe it. Now, you have the right to be tried publicly. You have the right to have an impartial jury. That jury must be drawn from the district wherein the crime was committed. So that, that uh, reduces it to the locality. So there's no um, bias of another state. So if, let's say you commit a crime against somebody in another state and that person files charges. Of course, you know, generally the people in his state are probably going to be biased towards him. But if the crime occurred in your state, then you should have the right to draw the jury from your own district because that's where the crime was committed and there, there's not going to be any bias towards the, towards the accuser. And in all criminal cases, you know, if there's ever a contradiction, if there's ever any sort of uh, you know, clarity issues, then the benefit of the doubt is always given to the defendant, just because that's how it works, and that's, that's the benefit of English law. <laughs> um, continuing on, to be confronted with the witnesses against him, uh, that's another very important piece that says that you are allowed to see the people that are testifying against you, that the government can't just line up a bunch of people who hate you, and you don't get to see who they are, because that wouldn't be fair to you. And so, again, giving the benefit of a doubt to the defendant. And finally, to have compulsory process for obtaining witnesses in favor. So this is also very important. So let's say that the, the person accusing you of a crime, whether that be the government or somebody else, or like a police station or somebody fi- pressing charges against you through the police, they're allowed to have as many witnesses as they want. And th- what if you're held back and you don't get to have any witnesses? That certainly is not fair considering you know, eyewitness testimony is considered <laughs> not, not to be reliable at all in any case, really. Studies have showed that witnesses lie, witnesses lie without knowing it, or they misremember things you know, wildly to the point that it might, uh, it might cause someone to be convicted wrongly. So to balance that out, you're allowed to compel, you're allowed to have the, comport, the court compel people to, witness, to be a witness in your favor. So some, you might be issued a summons to come testify in court because the person says, this witness is going to help my case. And if you say no, that's, that's not fair to you because chances are somebody who's a witness against you is going to be willing and able to come in the defense of the, of the person that's accusing you of the crime. So that's another very important part. And then finally, to have the assistance of counsel for his defense. This is, is another part of the Miranda rights that says that you're allowed to have a lawyer no matter what, even if the government has to pay for it. Everybody has the right to uh, a counsel for, to defend him or herself in court. Okay, Amendment 7. Uh, in suits of common law where the value in controversy shall exceed $20, the right of trial by jury shall be preserved, and no fact tried by a jury shall be otherwise reexamined in any court of the United States than according to the rules of common law. So common law is this kind of uh, ambiguous term that describes this ever-mutating um, law system where the, ju- the ju- cases decided by judges are, are kind of ad- appended to the law. And so if Judge A decides you know, X in one of his districts, then the judge below him has to kind of follow that. And so it's kind of like you're, you're adding a block to the end of the law and saying, okay, this judge decided this way, so the judges later on in the future shall decide accordingly unless they got it wrong, in which case the court above them has to, def- has to decide whether that was true or not. Um, so where the value in controversy shall exceed $20, this just means that uh, if in a, in a common lawsuit where somebody is accusing you of maybe theft or robbery or something like that or vandalism and the, the property is above a certain threshold, a very low threshold, very importantly, uh, you're allowed to ha- preserve the trial by jury, which means that a judge can't decide, you know, based on a whim that you are guilty or not, you know, it's just based on the value. That one is, is probably a lesser important one in my opinion, but still all, all of these have their importance. Um, Amendment 8. 
Excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishments inflicted. Now, this one, again, is pretty easy, but uh, that, that last part, the cruel and unusual punishments clause, uh, very widely misunderstood. So the people that are railing against the death penalty claim that the death penalty is something that's from the, the 18th century, 19th century, and that it's, it's cruel and unusual, or, or one of the two. Now, the really important word here is the conjunction word, and. So in order for a punishment to be violative of the Eighth Amendment, it has to be both cruel and unusual. If you look at the history of the death penalty, for the longest time, every single felony was a capital crime. That means that every time you committed a felony, or federal, like a federal felony, you would be put to death. Therefore, uh, the death penalty is not unusual. And while it may be cruel for punishment to be violative of the amendment, it must be both cruel and unusual. So um, if you're ever trying to defend the death penalty, then that's, that's the perfect defense there. Uh, nor excessive fines imposed, excessive bail, that should, should be pretty self-explanatory. You know, it's very subjective. Excessive is a very subjective word, but uh, that's important. You have to give the, the judiciary leeway to be able to interpret that as they will. Now, the last two amendments are very broad, but very important and are often overlooked by the people actually in the government. Uh, so Amendment 9, the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. Now, I referenced this back in when I was explaining the First Amendment. So this says that you're not allowed to interpret you being an individual or a judge or a politician or an official in the, in the executive department. You're not allowed to construe some certain rights to, form, to disparage rights retained by somebody else. This is a, an example of this would be the First Amendment. So you're not allowed to, you're not allowed to uh, use the free religion clause to prohibit somebody else from, a, from exercising their own religion. And that's basically the simplicity of it. It's a very simple, very general amendment, but it's also very important, important because you know, this case has come up a lot, a lot of times in the past. And uh, finally, to wrap it up, you have a very succinct and important uh, Amendment 10. The powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. Now, this also is very widely misunderstood. This does not say that the people have all the rights not specified here, or that they have all the rights not specifically given to the federal government. Notice that the states appear before the people. The states are the second layer of that federalist cake that contains the, the government at the top, the federal government at the top, the uh, states in the middle, and the people at the bottom. So the people and the states share those rights that are not included. So if there's anything that's not included and not pertaining to any other right given to the federal government, it's not that people have that intrinsically. It's the states have that. And if the states decide that they can't have that, by, whether that's by their own constitution or prohibited by the, the actual main constitution, then those are granted to the people or at least reserved to the people and retained by them. Um, so I hope this cleared up any, uh, any kind of inconsistencies or or just any sort of obfuscation you've had regarding the Bill of Rights. It's a very important document, uh, very important, very significant historically as well as legally. And um, a solid understanding is, is kind of prerequisite to exercising your rights freely and understanding that you have the ability to redress the government or to um, petition the government for any redress of these rights. And so, you know, if you know somebody who doesn't know about this, uh, send this podcast to them or use your new comprehension to um, elucidate the, the meaning of these very important amendments. So um, you know, we'll be back later this week, hopefully, with some new guests. Uh, very exciting stuff coming up with Crypto Economy. Uh, I'm William Harrison signing out. Uh, hope you have a good day.